You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi. Stop rolling on your chair. <laughs> Hi. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hello, I'm Simon. And just for the benefit of anybody who's listening and is curious, which I hope is none of you, that was Lee who was rolling on his chair. <laughs> um, Well-known Adele song. What was it called? Under the Lake? Was yeah. it called Under the Lake? Rolling in the Deep. What was it called? Under the Lake. That's not the most inspiring of titles, is it? It's not at all. <laughs> but... It's the first line in the script. And well, it's completely obvious compared to last week's metaphor. Well, yeah, but the thing is, this week, this year, the titles are all titles where the first half's title mirrors the second half's title. Mm. So there's a description of where they are. So this week they're under the lake, and next week they're before the flood. Okay. So I guess that's why. It doesn't exactly trip off the memory, though, does it? No. Okay, two things about... I was just going to say, oh, go I on, didn't then. know the title next week's. So if I'd have known the title of next week's this week, I would be already thinking about the fact that... Well, we spotted it. Well, yeah, I spotted, spotted it, didn't it, I? Going back to when the they, flood, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So you'd be, I'd be, almost be waiting for that point. Well, when he mentioned, when they looked out the window and somebody mentioned, and out there's the village that was there before the dam broke and it was flooded, mm. and you're thinking, right, and even if you didn't already know anything about it, you could put two and two together, right? Which brings me to... Okay, two things before we get into the episode. One's a more personal thing, and the other one's an observation. And the personal thing comes out of the observation, so let's do the observation first. The format for this story is Agatha Christie. And when I say it's Agatha Christie, I don't just mean they're solving clues... What I mean is, in an Agatha Christie, or actually in a Midsummer Murders or anything, all sorts of other things, what you do is you have two-thirds of the story is people solving clues, and then the last third of the story is the drawing room bit, where everybody sits around in the drawing room, and through words, generally, but if you're watching a film adaptation, or if you're reading the book, maybe, depending upon how exactly the author's done it, you will flashback to before it happened and watch through the descriptions those events unfold which bring you to where you are now and reveal the significance of the clues. And what Toby Whithouse has done is taken that format and said, right, how do we do that in a sci-fi sense? So this week we've had an episode where you're getting lots of clues thrown at you and as the Doctor's busy solving the clues... We're building up to the bit where he says, and this is what's happened and how. And what we're actually going to do, because it's a sci-fi show with a time travel conceit, instead of him just telling us about it, we're going to go back and watch it. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically the format for this episode, which is quite clever. What they're doing this year, this seems to be the theme. There's several themes apart outside of the arc. There's always several themes in Doctor Who. 
<clears throat> and one of Stephen Moffat's favourite themes, for example, and there were plenty of examples of it in tonight's episode, is because it's television, and this is, uh, to my mind, this is a big thing for Stephen Moffat, because it's television, one of Stephen Moffat's big things is sight. And a big part of that is eyes and mirrors and reflections and all kinds of things like this. Ever since the 11th hour, with the giant eye in the sky, there have always been lots of visual ticks in Stephen Moffat's stories. I mean, look at the Weeping Angels and the Silence. You have to look at them in order for the conceit to work. So, and, you know, this week, again, it was the eyes that was a big thing about it. Lots of reflections. But the other thing they're doing this year... Insofar as I can see from three episodes into a 12 episode series, the thing that they're doing this year is they're saying, right, it's a show with time travel. So rather than doing standard time paradoxes, and last week's story, the two part Davros thing, had a sort of framing device of a standard paradox, which is the Davros subplot. Mm. But that's only a a subplot. And what last week's did, in a very simple sense, is show you the result and the genesis of the result. So you see what Davros becomes in his later life, but then you also see what Davros was at the start of his life that turned him into what he'll be later in life. So if you take the paradox out of that equation, and the paradox, the bit where the doctor goes back and says mercy, Mm. is just an add-on. It's not really relevant. But what Stephen Moff has actually done is by throwing that in as a paradox, he's disguised the fact that what he's done is showed you the end and then showed you the beginning. This week again, we're seeing the end and then next week we're going to see the beginning. And I don't know how it's going to go down after that, but we have Fingers and Earsley. We have episode five and six, which to my mind looks like it's going to be Missy's daughter. And I suspect that in episode five, is episode five will take place for her after episode six, whereas for us and for the Doctor, episode six takes place after episode five. So in some, <laughs> if my theory about what's happening here is correct, mm-hmm. what will happen is we will see episode five, which will be the result of her plot arc, and then in episode six, we'll see where that came from. Right, fingers out of ears. Um, potentially, episode 7 and 8. I'm not spoiling anything now, Lee. I'm just continuing what I was saying. Episode 7 and 8, we're going to see a Zygon story that's... Do you know the titles by now, Lee? No. All right, fingers back in ears. <laughs> right, this is called the Zygon Invasion and the Zygon Inversion. Mm. Right, what's an inversion? An inversion is where you turn something around, mm. and by doing so, you reflect, again, that mirror metaphor, mm. something back that explains something about the thing you've turned around. And, for example, going back in time to look at where things came from is an inversion. That's not how you normally do things. So, and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, we really know very little about. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if 9 and 10 were in some way connected in mm. this fashion. Mm. And then 11 and 12 is obviously the... Mm. arc finale and that'll be where all this stuff is resolved but as far as i can see this entire season is going to be made up of stories where the first half tells you something and then the second half explains how that something came to be right i've been 
and I haven't even got to my obs- my personal observation yet. That was my that was my writerly head observation. My personal observation then, and I'll use this as an introduction to getting you two into it. Bloody is God. yeah, sorry, but <laughs> that was the very definition of a one watch Doctor Who episode. There were plenty of funny lines, but a funny line is only really ever as funny the first time. But the rest of it was literally all here's a clue. That's the answer. Here's a clue. That's the answer. Mm, mm. And I can't... And uh, this is by no stretch of the imagination a complaint because 90% of the Doctor Who audience or whatever will only ever watch it once. Mm. So I'm not sure whether he's deliberately done it like that, but I... uh, You know, when people are writing Doctor Who these days, it's very rare that they don't do something deliberately. And I'm not, and I might be reading more into it than is really there, but I, this episode felt to me like it's not going to have the rewatch capacity that other mm. stories have had. Mm. And while this, well, I suspect what may happen is the second half might, which means that you will watch this with the second half because it's all one story. But this episode felt to me like a once watched Doctor Who. Watch once Doctor Who. But anyway, uh, Simon, did you mm. enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. I would probably say I enjoyed it more than last week. Mm. Which I know will probably go against <clears> the flow, but yeah, no, I really did. And, and yeah, I, I take what you say because it was a ride. You know, I was laughing, I was getting uptight, and, and you know, it, it all worked. The pacing was great. Uh, was a, the script was great. The cast were great. Cost were really good, and the... I was thrilled when a couple of the characters went with the Doctor for, for the end of the, end it of the episode. It was a real shame that when one of the best actors in it gets killed off in the first, you know, <laughs> pre-title. I was just saying, yeah, at the beginning when he opens his mouth and says a few lines of it, oh, he's good. Oh, and then he's the good. next and thing the you next know, he's dead. Dead. <laughs> oh. Bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with you, Simon. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It felt a little bit like we went back into the seventies, and it was like a one watch. But what was quite it's quite a simple story. It's very it's a very, it's very, very simple story. Nineteen sixty seven actually. It's space under siege yeah, with a bit of Tom Baker's friend. It's space under siege with you know, that's that's what it is. But it's a mystery, like you say, it's a per, it's a perfect little mystery. So we're going, What's going on? You know, how did they are they ghosts, what's going on? Um But on top of that it's peppered with the most brilliant dialogue, really, really funny script, laugh out loud funny, which I haven't done with Doctor Who for a long time. Um and the acting was just superb across the entire cast, which is unusual because you normally get one or two that, well, I feel like I get one or two yeah. actors that are just yeah. not quite there. But with these guys, every single person. I did was feel in. the other girl wasn't perhaps as good as some of the rest of them. Uh, I don't know. I think she needs, she was like what she's supposed to be like. Yeah. Isn't she? And that, that's her character. So to me, Who's this so the one far, who said, like, um, the not deaf one? Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. Um, what's the other base that we've watched it so recently I couldn't I tell you a single person's <laughs> name neither <laughs> no. the actor nor the character the, the Satan's Pit base whatever that was called um, Sanctuary 5 Sanctuary 5 mm. the mm. people on there I mean you've got a couple of good actors in there but to me it's, the acting in that and the, and the, the base didn't I, didn't I couldn't believe it I just didn't think the acting was brilliant no actually considering that was just one story yeah. it felt that those characters are all had their place a bit like the um, you know, the they cast in real. Alien. They felt real, like yeah. real people. Yeah. They had a background. You know, the best way to write a character like that is to 
for the writer to sit down and plot out an entire history for that character yeah, exactly. and then never mention it on screen. Exactly. That's what so the writer's got mm. it in his head. Yeah. And potentially, if he's shared it with the actor, although he doesn't need to because it should be in the words that are on the page, but the actor has it in his head, but the viewer never needs to be told about it. Do you know what it's like? It's like when you do your artwork and you do all your pencils. You know, most people will never see mm. the pencil lines. They will only see... The paint over the top. Yeah, the exact inked line, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. It was, uh, there was a bit of an element of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> that poor guy who's... Scooby-Doo. Uh, Scooby-Doo. <coughs> the guy who said, I bleed. You know, I'm not, I'm not a hero, I bleed. The, the, the kind of slightly scared one. Who gets thrown right into the deep end straight away. And so, you know, go and get the ghosts. There's just that shaggy moment where he's looking through the door and going, uh, hello. Mm. <laughs> and then runs away. So you can imagine going, g g ghost yeah. Did you think when we got the guy... And he didn't last very long either, the, the second guy who gets killed. Yeah. yeah. He reminded oh, me a what? bit he of... He was possibly the... I mean, I know he's playing a bit of an arch character, but he was possibly the weakest of them. He was the only mm. one who was kind of a little bit of a caricature, whereas the other ones were quite believable. Well, he reminded me, and I don't know if it's deliberate, but it kind of felt deliberate depending on... No, I don't know, actually, whether Toby Whithouse would remember, but um, I can't remember the character's name from Revenge of the Cybermen, the double agent. Oh, well, man, with a blonde yeah. yeah, obviously the chap in this wasn't a double agent or a no. triple agent or well, whatever, no. but it was all about avarice. It's, it's a and bit he felt of a like shame. The, he, he felt like the one who was undermining everybody else. Yeah, he, he, there was something interesting because Clara looked at him as he walked away and I thought, oh, there's going to be a bit of a through line here with this character. We're, we may get to see him being a little bit like the chap from Aliens. You know? Well, we might still do we because still do. if next week's takes place before, yeah. you know, his... Well, it depends how Toby Whitehouse is going to do it. But if you sat down and did this by the book, yeah. then his story arc would be next week, unbeknownst to everybody else who's on the base, because they think he's just come to the base, you know, for the mining stuff. Next week, we'll find out he's already there in situ when the spacecraft yeah, yeah, yeah. crashes in the first place. This is what I'm thinking. That that's what was mentioned when we were, talk were looking at the episode. I thought, okay, so... He looks like the guy who's going to be flooding the village. He's Lance Henriksen in Alien I mean? 3 yeah. or doctor, whatever it though, is. Can he? Else he would have recognised the Doctor when he saw him, so he's not going to meet the Doctor. Well, well he may have just pretended not to recognise him. unit, something like that, you know, okay. could be, yeah. couldn't it? Mm. Who knows, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, we don't, we don't, I may have missed stuff because we've literally just come absolutely fresh from watching it. We don't know how long that spaceship was there. They just say they found it. Yeah. Mm. When was the flood? The flood happened recently, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so. Not, like, incredibly recently, but I don't no. think it's like an, it was a dam that bust, right? Right. So it's not like it was hundreds of years ago. And it was like a decade or something, maybe at most. they found the spaceship, when they found the spaceship or where? Well, they'd literally just found it when we saw the pre-titles, right? Because yeah. they just brought it on board. So that's three days before most of the episode takes place. Okay, and the but pilot a, was found in the church? Well, the the box. I don't think it's the pilot. I think it's the prisoner. Or whatever mm. it to is. To be honest, in, in whatever. Box, yeah. yeah. Well, all I'm, just, all I'm thinking about is the Edwardian-looking ghost wandering about. You know, this is an old village. So it could have been there for years. It could have, it could have died. He may have even been the ghost of the village before the village got flooded and all that sort of stuff. Well, as just doctor, a, as just a sideline to who this strange Edwardian ghost. Well, the is. doctor says this first ghost was from the planet Tivoli. He doesn't say the craft was. He says the ghost was. 
and he recognises the type. Okay. So I don't think I think I think you're red herringing yourself. Possibly, or else maybe it's no. a red herring. But now the doctor definitively says that first ghost is an alien. I think I've just missed that line. When did he, or how did he know that it was a Tivoli? At what point? <clears throat> he recognised him. As soon as he saw him. Right. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think it was the second time he saw him where he said it, but he said it in a way that led you to believe that he recognised him. Mm. You know, not recognised the character, but recognised the species. Mm. <clears throat> Which I suppose you might not do until the second time, because as it's a ghost... It's not giving off the same signals as a living member of that species would, right? Great ghosts. Mm. Well, here's a... The Victorian garb is a bit of a... Here's a thing. Are we having, apart from everything else I said at the start of this podcast, are we having a tribute to Peter Davison series this year? Last year we had a tribute to Unit series. This year we've got a tribute to Peter Davis and Malka. No, uh, there are obviously parallels with Warriors of the Deep here, but I mean those parallels are for me coincidental. It's an undersea base with a nuclear reactor. I mean, if you're going to set a story in an undersea base, well, it's not even undersea; it's under a lake, under a loch, I should say. If you're going to set a story a hundred and odd years in the future and set it under a lake, it's bound to have a nuclear reactor. I mean, I think these things are coincidental. But what I think is less coincidental is, especially if it's a prisoner in that box, if it's a prisoner in that box, it's not just the visitation, but it's also the awakening, a crushed, crushed spaceship. Could be a zero cabinet. No. So, sorry, what makes <laughs> but, No, okay, no. It no, I'm, I'm going back to the Peter Davison thing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I don't think you are being funny. It's a hermetically sealed <laughs> that's, cabinet that's, that's cryogenically keeping mm. the occupant mm. frozen in a mm. state of stasis, which is essentially what the zero cabinet does. Mm. So it's not a million miles away. Maybe it was. Peter Davison inside it. No, what I'm saying right. is, what I'm saying is, here you've got a story that very definitely takes elements from the visitation and possibly also the awakening, which because of the Eric Saywood rewrite made that story a kind of follow on from the visitation because of the mention of the Terraleptals, right? So there's already a connection between those two stories and here Toby Whithouse has taken an idea and made that central in his own story. The Zygon one, fingers and ears Lee. <clears throat> Peter Harness, who's written the Zygon one, has said that there is something about that story that is a sequel, his word, to Mordring Undead. Fingers out of ears. Last week, we watched a story in which Davros, at the end of the day, the entire story was set up to Davros plotting to steal regeneration energy from the Doctor. And that's what happens pretty much in Mordring Undead. Mm. to a different end purpose. But that's the conceit of the story. The central conceit of Mordrin Undead is somebody wants to steal the Doctor's regenerations. Mm. The central conceit of Magician's Apprentice and Witcher's Familiar, somebody wants to steal the Doctor's regeneration energy. It's Maybe I'm reading more into this than there really is, but that's three examples, two for Lee, but three for the rest of us, of things that very specifically come out of Peter Davison's stories. 
Well, it's hard to say, but I just wonder if in some ways, not ostentatiously, but just as a kind of... When you're writing something, especially if you're doing the same series year after year, and each year you've got to come up with 12, 14 episodes, whatever, whatever number it is, you've got to put things in A, to amuse yourself, and B, to inspire yourself. Mm, mm. So it may be that Stephen Moffat sat down and thought, oh, what the hell am I going to do for my fifth series in charge? Oh, I know what I could do. The Fifth Doctor. And so here we are, and, you know, just purely <laughs> by way of amusing himself, but at the same time also giving himself a few ideas. Because when you, because, you know, this isn't a story that Toby Whithouse has brought to Stephen Moffat. This is a story that Stephen Moffat's asked Toby Whithouse to write. So presumably at some point, the original kernel of this idea came from Stephen Moffat. Stephen, and even if that original idea didn't have anything to do with the undersea base, and even if it didn't have anything to do with the crashed spaceship, Stephen Moffat has said to Toby Whithouse, I want you to tell a story where we see the result of something and then we go back in time to see where it came from. Well, now we, I mean, we've seen the ghosts right, all the way through and, you know, he says they're ghosts, they're ghosts, 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 ghosts. Well, plainly they're not, are they? Because we've <clears> seen the Doctor now. As well, a somehow. So there's, there may be, is, is it, this is another one of those things Stephen Moffat does, isn't it? He has these um, echoes of people. Mm. that come back, you know, Silence in the Library and all the other ones that we've seen. This is, it seems to be another one of those things where you, well, the people just don't die. They kind of come back as something else or they're, they're, they're left as a trace but to there were, continue the But in the dialogue, the Doctor says something about he's using their souls to transmit this message. Yeah. But if I mean, you actually so? get down to it, yeah, I mean, that's such a nebulous idea. If you, you get down to it... when he says there's no such thing. When you die, you're dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what you do if you're transmitting you need power energy right electricity yeah for, okay. so full of. but we are and you know this is okay to go off on a tangent here's my theory about ghosts right and it's not a million miles away from something like the stone tape the stone tape posits spoilers for anybody who's not seen the stone tape the stone fingers in ears <laughs> <laughs> this is a new production about to be transmitted yeah, exactly, yeah. but the stone tape posits that when you die and it has to be a violent and sudden death because otherwise if you die a natural death your life energy for want of a better expression those you know electrical reactions that are taking place millions of them in your body every second if you die of a natural cause they kind of dissipate, dissipate of nat, you know, in a natural fashion. If you die a sudden death, you know what happens to all those reactions that are all happening at the same. Mm. And Stone Tape posits that if you die in that fashion, and you have in that particular serial uh, story, it's a particular type of rock that absorbs that energy and projects it back as ghosts. For me, it's like. If somebody dies a sudden, unnatural death, then there may be some kind of electrical discharge left behind after they've gone, which wouldn't be a ghost who walks around and goes, ooh, no, and all this kind of stuff. No, replay. but it would be 
Well, it wouldn't necessarily even be a replay. It would be an energy, probably, that you wouldn't even be able to see. Mm. But you know what I mean? That is, to me, a rational way of explaining how concepts such as ghosts can exist. Now, did you but, come up with that rational concept? No, I believe that, basically, all my did life. That, okay, did that come from a fiction, originally, and you thought, oh, that's, that's good, or from... No, it just came from me. Yeah, me too. I had exactly the same thing. Then I saw the stone tape and thought, mm. hey, that's my idea. Yeah, yeah. Because I was thinking about ferret core, about tapes and ferret core. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've said, yeah, said yeah. this before, yeah. Quite bizarre. Anyway, I think it's one of, one of my but stories it's, in your book. I think it's a rational way to, you know, rationalise something that is, you know, on the surface of it, irrational. But my point, therefore, is... What Toby Whithouse seems to be doing here, and obviously you're saying that Nigel Neal and me and you have all had the same idea. It's a pretty rational idea for a rational mm. mind to have about something that's on the face of it irrational. Toby Whithouse, probably, and maybe in conjunction with Stephen Moffat, has had the same idea. And so what he's doing is, instead of rationalising... Well, to me, what it seems like he's doing is... Instead of rationalising these dead people as the kind of ghost that we're talking about, he's doing a stone tape on it, where he's mm. taking the rational idea yeah. and extrapolating something out of it that he can use in a science fiction sense. So I don't know what the explanation's going to be, because presumably we're going to have the proper explanation next week. But at this point, it seems to me like those dead people, some force, some equipment within that spaceship has taken the energy of the people dying and is using that energy as the projector. Mm. And so what we're seeing using is... Using them as constructs. Yeah. And so what we're seeing is kind of ghosts because that's how you tell a story yeah, like this. But the interesting thing about this is that they seem to have a semblance of intelligence. Yeah, they're repeating the same words. It's almost like a computer program. Yeah. But then we find them. out the explanation for that. Yes. But then they can pick up solid objects too. As I was at the moment, uh, That's just when a... they were walking through the walls, I half expected it to be like Rentigos, where one of the arms hadn't quite died and they can't get through the wall, you know? Well, instead, what happened was <laughs> so the weapon fell out of his hand. Yeah. So he had the same moment, but. Yeah. That was a great moment. It was. No Timothy Claypole inside there. Yeah. But things like that are just the kind of hokey add ons you'd put into. Hokey. <laughs> oh, it is. The the fact that these energy constructs can pick up metal objects. We didn't get an explanation for specifically why it had to be metal. No. no. But And why he didn't hit the other guy. No, we will find that out mm. next week. Uh, yeah, I mean, that looks to me like it could be one of those things where... Well, this is not an example that I'm expecting to for it to turn out to be. But in other things, you'll see things like um, the reason why the monster didn't attack was because... A bit like the Dalek in Waters of Mars that doesn't attack mm. yeah, because it knows she has to be in a specific place in the future. I don't think any of them were attacking, even with the axe and the harpoon. The harpoon fired off. Didn't hit them, did it? No, they wanted more dead bodies so they could strengthen the signal, didn't they? Yeah, they did say that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but what what about the spanner? Well, he was going to hit him with it, presumably. But he didn't. It was the only weapon he had there. No, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to come to, Lee. I'm saying sometimes in stories of this sort of ilk, you will have a situation whereby, for example, and I'm not expecting this to be the explanation, but it could be an explanation for this kind of behaviour, that ghost 
comes up close to this guy and it's only when he's really up close and personal that the ghost realise something that the character and none of the other characters know. He's got cancer, he's only got two weeks to live and the ghost thinks, this guy's not got enough energy to help us. If I kill him, already his energy's dissipating, he just doesn't know it yet. Do you know what I mean? That's the kind of explanation I'm expecting. Not necessarily specifically to do with... Yeah, maybe. Unless he's making some kind of judgment on them. As much as the people that kill him. Maybe. But on that subject then, one thing we didn't get that you two were both expecting, that I'm not necessarily, is is the deaf woman going to turn out to be... Oh no, we did have it because she was able to lip read what they were saying. You said it right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I said it right at the beginning. I was waiting for her to say it's big fish. fish I was hoping... I was hoping we wouldn't have that. I was well. I was hoping it wasn't. We were going to get through, you know, even into part two and find that that's kind of the the reason why she's there. Yeah, yeah. No, I was hoping there wouldn't be a reason why she was there. No, that's what. No, no, that's what well, we're saying. Yeah, but yeah. I'm so, I was yeah, taking yeah. it to its, its extent and saying, yeah, we could wait, go all the way through two parts and find yeah. near the end that it's all solved by her lip reading. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm saying I was hoping that Toby Whithouse has looked at. Well, for want of a better word, representation. 50 years ago, if you were, for example, in a wheelchair, you know, uh, wheelchairs back then were not electronically motorised and there weren't ramps at shops and shopping centres and such Mm. like. 50 years ago, if you were in a wheelchair, you were pretty much confined to the house and, you know, its immediate environs. 50 years ago, if you were blind, you were pretty much confined to the house and its immediate environs. These days... If you're in a wheelchair or if you're blind, the country we live in is set up so that you can pretty much go anywhere and do anything. Extrapolate from that, 100 years into the future, somebody who's totally deaf can be in charge of an installation. Yeah. That's what I was hoping he was mm, doing there. Mm. He was extrapolating. I think he is. I don't think it takes anything away from the character because the character was very strong anyway. He but... does, but by giving it... By giving the character that thing to do, yeah. it, that does say, well, this is the reason why I've used that character. There were other ways that could have been done. It could have been a program on a, you know, on a camera mm. and a computer program that reads the lips. Or I, was just whatever. About, I was just about to say that even, you know, if you think about 150 years in the future, um, <clears> if you if you look at your science, there are people hoping and actually believing that, you know, people who are deaf, there's, there's a cure for a lot of deafness. Not necessarily you know, born deaf, but you can you can cure a lot of deafness, or they're thinking they will be able to in the future. Now, 150 years in the future, somebody in charge of a base, who's deaf, who needs somebody else to translate? Mm. It didn't quite ring true for me. No. It's a bit odd. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. she'll never be able to pick up the phone or talk to the comms, because when he was doing the connect sign, which I know a little bit, but not much about BSL, he was doing a connect sign when she was waiting for what's coming from the comms. You wouldn't put somebody in charge of a base who can't hear or see the comms. No, no, it would no. come up. It would come up as a visual. If they knew she was on the base, they'd make everything perfect for her to understand. And this is why it's a storytelling thing. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. a shame it was that storytelling yeah. thing rather than the it only, okay. It's only gonna... a small grumble, really. Yeah. It's just a pity he didn't. Well, it's just a pity he didn't just say, right, okay, this is unlikely but nevertheless let's throw it in to make a point about something because even in you know in a story like this it's not about that it's about something else but you know like i'm always saying about your subplots need to have a consistency with your main plot 
the main plot is about a message being transmitted, right? So having a deaf character there in the first place, yeah. who has to have messages translated. Messages for, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it makes sense to have... It doesn't make sense to have a deaf character there necessarily per se, but having a deaf character there makes sense. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't put a deaf character in there because of that, but having a deaf character in there works. Mm, yeah. So it's all about, just very quickly, yeah, yeah. About, the, about messages and communication and yeah, understanding. And, yeah. you know, the TARDIS isn't translating either. So there's all these things wrapped <clears throat> around this <clears throat> messaging. Mm. Well, the TARDIS didn't communicate because they weren't actually words. Were they? The the the. No, it was like an imprint, did, wasn't it? But you also yeah. couldn't understand the sign language either. You oh no, no, no! I to make, that's the point I wanted to make. Is that I love that. I love the fact that the Doctor couldn't do that. Oh yeah, but he explained that. Yeah, it was, and it was a jokey explanation. It was, yeah, yeah. Was it because Deleted. of the TARDIS? Or was that something else? Yeah, no, the TARDIS had cocked up and it. Basically, fantastic. Yeah, because yeah, the TARDIS. Instead I want of, to see more of that on Alien Planets and. You know, maybe you just, I don't know, lives... It's just, what was it? The TARDIS had cocked up. It's, it, 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 instead of translating sign language, it was trying to s- translate semaphore. <laughs> so... Well, I want him to land in Roman times and they're all signing. That'd be quite funny, wouldn't it? Hang on, I thought his explanation something got deleted. Yeah, yeah, in the TARDIS or whatever. It was like some kind of a cock-up or something. Oh, I thought that was to do with his regeneration, that he'd kind of forgotten sign language. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe I missed that. Because like I say, you know, like I've pointed out already, we're all literally fresh to record this podcast. He says, has anyone got any flags? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd assumed the TARDIS had deleted the thing. I don't know. Maybe it was it. Maybe it was the TARDIS. I don't know. Mm. But one way or the other, something got cocked up, something got deleted, and the TARDIS was trying to translate semaphore instead of sign language or whatever. Well, where were we before we started talking down? I, I was going to say, I don't know. Is it, is it true that some deaf people don't like the idea of um, everyone learning the sign language? Um, the word's in, not precious, but they... they no, no, but in my experience, uh, it's a community. It's mm. a deaf community. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if you learn the language, um, there's a portion of the people that I've met in my life who are really appreciative that you're having a go, mm. and there are others that are quite impatient because they shorten the language pretty much. Mm. So, like know, any kind of like language, any, yeah, you don't you don't have the small words. I mean, pretty much you just throw a whole lot of. Uh, signs in, and that will explain what you're trying to say. And he was say. doing, as far as I could see, that's what he was doing on yeah. the episode as well. And there are different types. There's BSL, there's the finger spelling in Scotland, they do a lot of, there's the American version, so everybody does slightly differently. And for the benefit of our listeners, Lee knows this because of his library experiences. I've got, yeah, I've got BSL, but um, I'm only at the lower level. Mm. But, but yeah, I that's use it, I use so it true of so many things. <laughs> 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 I don't need to train. I've got life skills. No, um, yeah, no, I use it in my work. But um, <clears throat> it's just a, it's, it is fascinating. Yeah. On an entirely unrelated subject, then the sets wasn't it just glorious? To mm. look you know what? The first opening or the second scene, I think it was, when they showed the spaceship, and, and the, you know, there's just it was just beautiful. I thought, oh my god, this is this is a film. This mm. looks like a film now. And the acting was like spot on in the first three seconds. I was thinking, this is just great. So it was like the best who we're getting at the moment, uh, you know, cinematography wise. You compare that to kind of slithing in London and stuff. It's completely I was, I was different. Thinking that as I was watching, I was just thinking, this is great Doctor Who. This is. is great Doctor Who. Uh, That's this... what most people would have said. What is the deep needed to look like? 
Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, my only little thing was there was a bit when the when the water was coming in, and they showed those bits of water coming in little trickles, mm. and I thought, oh, this is a little bit. Should be like, yeah. And then all of a sudden, they showed the set, and it, and it was flooded. It was just like, all oh, right. So you had the shots with the loads of water going around. So they probably, you know, safety regulations. Mm. They probably couldn't throw in as much water into the water moving shots. Well, I didn't have they... a Sophie Aldred to drench. Yeah, no, just it was were buckets, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just a production thing. They obviously mm. there's obviously restrictions on what mm. they can and cannot do. So mm. they obviously tried to make that bit look as exciting as they could. There were some nice moments, weren't there? I mean direction wise, there, there was quite a nice moment, an echo almost <clears> of <throat> Martha flown away from the ship in forty two where they're looking at each other through the water. They both put their hand up in a kind of Spock and Kirk way like trust me. That was that was a lovely I thought that was a really nice moment. But they also threw some horror cliches in. I think literally within first five minutes something moved in front of the screen yeah yeah mm. and i think i visit I, I think i audibly went oh because it was come on and then he saw a reflection in the mirror and, and then you... shook his head oh it must be all a dream i hate it when they do that if you see something yeah, yeah, in the mirror, yeah, you see something in the mirror god damn it you know you're not that <laughs> we haven't got that hallucinogenic thing going on every three seconds of our lives and the shaking his head bit wasn't particularly well done no so those are my gripes yeah 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 <laughs> Just a little cliche. Well, the pacing was good when they were being chased by the ghosts. They weren't doing yeah. the, the kind of plodding mummy thing where they could have just run and got away with them. They did actually seem to be moving at a fair pace. I suppose if I have a niggle, I think it's that too much of the dialogue was too functional. Because, mm. I mean, in an episode like that, it is almost from start to finish, purely 100% exposition, even if it's exposition about things you're finding out. Because when you're finding things out, what you're doing is expositing where they've come from. Mm, mm. So it was... I mean, there were lots of funny lines, but in between the funny lines, there were lots and lots and lots of exchanges of exposition. It's. It was. I think it got away with it. It did. But this is yeah, what I mean no, about I it being a one-watch episode. But the thing is, if you confine people to a room or one base or whatever, it. You know, I. I. I say if it works on stage, you know, if it works on TV, like that, then it would work on stage as well. So midnight, for instance, that would work as a stage play easily, beautifully, and so with this, you could just about get away with it. The ghost could be done in a particular way, but. It needs to be kind of like, you've got to have the action and you've got to have the tension. You've got to have all the things that we need to keep in, keep us watching. Well, if you're going to do this... I actually thought it kind of paced it really well all the way through. And, and the dialogue mm. and the stuff mm. that was said, I didn't think anything was really... That I think wasted. it was delivered in such a way that it, it did feel yeah. like natural speak as opposed to... But if you're going to do this as a stage play, and there's one in particular I'm thinking about, and I can't remember what it's called, the one where they're all at the railway station. Called the railway station. No, I don't think it is. The one with the way in at the railway station. It's like the a ghost one. Yeah. Yeah, the nineteen forties film as well, wasn't it? Yes, there was actually. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen that. I've seen it on the stage a with couple a of times though. Famous comedian of the time. But the point with something <laughs> like that is, if you set, if you do something like that as a stage play, one of the conceits of doing something like that is. And a bit like something like an Inspector Calls, is that every character has to have a purpose and a destination. Yeah. Whereas this, and this is 
Yeah. One of the, not problems, but this is one of the things of doing something like Doctor Who, taking on something like this. Unless Toby Whithouse sits down and spends a year writing this, which obviously he's not going to, you're not going to have a purpose and a destination for every character. The characters are pretty functional because they have to be. They're there to fulfil functions rather than having purposes. All right, so the characters were quite well-rounded. But the characters were well round. Grand. Yeah, the I characters think. were well rounded. I think they've got minor destinations. I think in the, within the characters there are things. That yeah, but to... what I mean is mm. they don't have destinations that are part of the the story that you're no, telling. No, no, something like no. that ghost one. Yeah. Something like an inspector calls. Yeah. Every character is a piece in the jigsaw. Mm. In this, the characters aren't even part of the jigsaw. They're sort of mm. the ones who are putting the jigsaw together. Mm. I think that most of them have got a final destination. <laughs> Sorry. Well, <laughs> I just not a complaint. Did you, did I'm just you, saying that's a function of this kind of story on television, as opposed to this kind of story on the stage. Without yeah. the word water, is I anyone who saw a lot of parallels of water to Mars? Very similar layout, and as far as no. characters, and, and certainly the, um, the 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 deaf girl, the girl in charge, very much reminded me of. Uh, is it Lindsay? Duncan's yeah, character yeah. Mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, in as much as you know, she's I... the one that's looking out for all of the crew. And I think that's that. just one of the functions of telling this kind of story. Mm. Yeah, I think mm. somebody in charge just would be like that. Tell you what, though, Waters of Mars and Rebel Flesh and this, all three with women in charge, mm. which I'm not saying is necessarily problematic. Have we had any which didn't have a woman in charge of a base of this kind is set in the future so. during the last five years? I mean, we the, the one before that would have been the Satan Pit, and it was, um, what's-his-face from Casanova in charge of that? Sean Parks. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I didn't think he was very convincing in that part. Sean Parks. But, He's a great actor. He is. He wasn't served terribly well by the story now. Mm. But the second in command... Was female, right? In that, <clears throat> right? Well, she—I don't think she was second in command. I think she was like the science officer or science something. Officer. Mm. I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? I don't. We haven't questioned it. At all. There's no reason to question it. But uh, that—that's a good sign. No, but what no, it means to me is, see, back in the 1960s when they were doing uh, season five, mm. you always had uh, the guy in charge of the base, and the conceit then was the guy in charge the of the base. The guy in charge of the base would have some kind of problem. And his mm. problem is affecting his work in possibly a positive fashion. In other words, he had something that was driving him. And that thing that was driving him was driving him to complete his mission, whatever, uh, you know, more effectively than he would have otherwise. So... All these men were extremely driven men, but by the same token, that problem would be the undermining of them when the aliens turned up and they wouldn't be able to cope with it. And virtually all the stories in season Mm. five had that exact same feature. Uh, And here you've got... I mean, these are much more spread out. The Waters of Mars, the Rebel Flesh and this. But it's almost like the thing that's the tick now is it's a woman in charge. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's funny how I was just saying 
we haven't really thought about that too much. But the language has changed so much in TV. I think we're just, you know, we're just used to anything like anything, <clears throat> which is acceptable and, and something that serves the purpose of the story. It's fine. In the olden days, back in the sixties, you know, things like was it Zoe got asked to make the tea or whatever by the doctor or oh look she's clever and pretty and intelligent oh, it was Polly wasn't it Polly yeah <laughs> you know or whatever it was the the, the mind you that was a plot point that's the moon base you're talking about it's isn't moon it? base, that was a plot point yeah. she needed to go and make the coffee so that she could bring the sugar in and that's where they find out where the poison is ah, clever than I thought because that's been pointed out so many yeah. times as a character problem, but it's not a character problem, it's a plot problem. It's a badly written plot. <laughs> so, And she's never asked to make tea or coffee at any other point while she's on the TARDIS. I, don't think. I think there's a few jokes right in the start of The Smugglers, yeah. and after that, I don't think there's anything else like that. I've just listened to Prisoners in Space, which is a lost story. Oh, the uh, one where the worm that turned and all that. Oh, it's just brilliant. It's so funny as well. It's very good. It's one of the best lost stories. I've really enjoyed it a lot. I'm presuming it's been rewritten quite considerably um, by Big Simon Finish. Gary has, has, has rewritten mm. it. Because um, I don't think it... scripts for most of these things. No, that, that was that was a full script that was found in... Um, oh, really? Yeah, in, in um, Fraser Heinz's garage, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> he found it. So, do you want to do this? And I went, yeah. So, it's a full script and got in contact with Dick Sharples and they got it. Made. So, basically, they've just updated it uh, um, so that it can be presented on yeah, audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they've had to update a certain amount of things. So, there were things that the doctor was, was saying that they decided to give to Jamie and then say, Jamie's from a coarser time. So, you could get away with him saying the slightly sexist things. Uh, um, but it's very funny. But probably a, a lot of, probably, you know, not to. Um, <laughs> sort of not to do down his job there, but probably a lot of Simon Guerrero's job there is to turn visual gags and stage directions mm. into dialogue. Yeah, 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 a lot of that. Very good. Back to the episode. Is there mm. anything I think the music <clears throat> I was particularly struck by this week? Oh, yeah, I, I, I thought the, the 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 kind of atmospheric slow stuff was just. Gorgeous. Mm. Is it the same guy right now? Is he, is yeah, Murray it's Gunn? amazing, I think. Because mm. you've, all the comedy stuff that we were getting, all the motifs in Matt Smith's era was starting to get in my, on my nerves. And I love Murray Gold, don't get me wrong. I think it's the best thing ever. But there were some moments where it was becoming a bit bare in the big blue house, a bit Barney. It's almost like telling you how to react with the music. It's like, no, no, keep the music out of it. I'll react to what I'm watching, thanks. But here it seemed really subtle. Um, and even when it upped the pace and the, and the beats and the, the bass beats were dropping in, I just thought, yeah, this seemed to be perfect for me. I'll tell you what, though, he, what this you... series, going back to the theme music, I, I, I'm completely at home with that theme now. Completely. I think they've redone it. Hmm. I'm not sure if they've redone the music. I think maybe they've brought the drums up in the music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the opening titles, I think they've darkened it. So, it's, hmm. so that even though it looks to me... I could be completely wrong, but it looks to me like they've taken the actual opening titles that they had and just darkened it so that it's less obviously cartoony. Every time, in Russell T. Davis's era, especially in the first three or four seasons, um, and then we started getting the, the pre-titles, whatever it is, the pre-sequence, when the music screamed in and it was big, orchestral, loud... I always got a chill down my spine almost every time because I just love that theme. So good. Boom, straight in. 
everything in Stephen Moffat's here, it's, it's just doesn't do it for me. When you see something like the ghosts turning up and she says, oh, they're ghosts. And then we get a little scene of the ghosts moving a bit. I would have cut it at her saying the ghost and then just smacked into the music. But it, I don't the know. music doesn't smack we, in with this kind of thing. It doesn't. None of them do. They haven't done for years, and that's my one they problem did, with the it. The first Matt Smith one, the fiery. Oh, the fiery one did, yeah. But when yeah, it started going, that was my going, favorite. It's like, oh, what? No, no, no. You just need to go bang into the music. Yeah, you need to you get need that to get, scream back. Get the scream back, Murray, <laughs> and <laughs> scream crash. Yeah, but the actual music itself, I think, it's better. Definitely better. Anything else? Or should we score this one? Sure, I've got to score it on the first hour. Like the cloister and the TARDIS and all that sort of business. Why is the TARDIS being so... I think the cloister... When... Oh, I'm seeing from one watch. I Looking at it now, I'd say the cloister bell was because the TARDIS knew it was about to be separated mm. irretrievably from the Doctor, but I could be wrong. Maybe I'm misremembering where the cloister oh, bell know, happened. Mind you, the Doctor's come back as a ghost, so maybe that's... The, the TARDIS end, don't take this one on. Something Could be. might happen. There's a cliffhanger. I thought it was great. Yes. Really good cliffhanger. It's one of those... One of the best. Let's have the Mary Whitehouse conversation, but on the subject of the cliffhanger, it well, because it was you, actually, Simon. Brought I, up, yeah, it? it was a semi-joke, but at the same time, it was kind of... The cliffhanger was less violent and less direct than it was sinister. Mm-hmm. It was it was the cliffhanger from the rebel flesh turned completely on its head. The doctor's double turns up in the rebel flesh, and it's it's not a comedy moment. But when the doctor's double turns up in the rebel flesh, it's a moustache twirling moment. It's a moment of melodrama. When the doctor turns up at the end of this, it's a really sinister moment. It's a really down moment. Mm-hmm. Instead of it freaks you out a little bit, but it freaks you out in a way that makes your blood sink mm. as opposed to rise. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Sometimes a cliffhanger will be an adrenaline rush. This was more a turns your blood cold. I yeah. suppose that's what I'm trying to say I in simple language. Know my son will, will find this one creepy as hell. Because mm. he was, I've said it before on the podcast many times, but he had a problem with um, The Unquiet Dead for years. He keeps. He watched it once, and he's never gone back to it. In fact, he's only rewatched it um, over the last couple of months. Mm. I hadn't realised he'd never seen it more than once. Um, and for all those years, those wide eyes of that ghost walking towards the screen really affected him. So, you know, characters like Gollum and any, anything with big eyes. Just yeah, no, it was the same. Michael out. Jackson's Thriller. I couldn't, yeah, watch, I couldn't yeah, yeah. watch that video. That's, that's I mean, really freaky, wasn't it? And now Finn, after all these years, has come back at the age of 32 and watched it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the granddad, age of 16, he's gone back to watch it. And you've changed your prescription of your glasses as well. You? So it's, it's, all, it's all good. It's all good. But uh, no, you're right, it's creepy. And I think that's going to hold with a lot of kids. I mean, you mentioned something interesting about the age ranges and how you thought they might well this was going to come out of the Mary White the thing was at the end of that Mm. Simon you turned around and said that's a Mary Whitehouse moment yeah in as much as it's an episode ending with the Doctor basically underwater dead dead ish ish and my counter to that was Mary Whitehouse's problem at the end of uh, The Deadly Assassin Part 3 is that it's the Doctor in the act of being killed Mm, mm. 
and those are the those were the Mary Whitehouse things. Yeah, the act of doing something. <coughs> Whereas this, like I say, it was much more sinister. It was something that's already happened. It makes your blood run cold, mm. and what you're left with is the image of the future to come. And the, the reason why it works is because it's something that you know is going to happen as opposed to has happened. Mm-hmm. So what you have is a sense of, you know, what it leaves you with is a sense of dread of what is to come as opposed to a sense of shock yeah. as what has passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as far as Clara's concerned, it's, he, he failed. Basically, isn't mm. it? We haven't oh, mentioned Clara, have we? Because I don't necessarily think she has any, any very minor niggle. What are you saying oh, about? we had that scene actually. I'll bring that up in a second. Yeah, it's just when they're coming out of the TARDIS. I'd like to hear less of these things, like, "Oh, can we go back to that planet with the people with long necks who've been celebrating independence for two hundred years or whatever?" She said, "You know, celebrating New is Year." That getting on your New nerves? Year was it? Yeah, is that getting on your nerves. Now? That's getting on my nerves. The little now. stories we don't see. Yeah, but, and it's kind of, and that's where his... you get those dialogue things where it's. I think the trouble there is, <laughs> if you go back to the 1960s, yeah. Doctor Who's very simple. So the conversations you have, Doctor Who, not just Doctor Who, television's very simple. So the conversations you have in the TARDIS tend to reflect that. Mm. So you don't tend to get into the psychological ramifications of travelling in the TARDIS. You have your it's bigger on the inside, isn't it freaky? But you don't get into the whys and wherefores and the result mm. of it being so mm. freaky. You get to the 1970s and Doctor Who, for the first half, is stuck on Earth. And then, you know, and the stories that aren't stuck on Earth, the conversations and the dialogues are about, oh, we're not on Earth anymore. And in the second half, you get some really interesting stuff in the second half of the 70s, actually. We're, especially in the Graham Williams era, where they, what they're doing is they're finding, because this is how it works. You put your characters in the TARDIS. They can't just say, "Oh, it's adventure time. Stop the TARDIS. Let's start an adventure." They have to be doing something. But the TARDIS is an empty space, so what they're doing has to be something that you bring to it. So during the Graham Williams era, what they did was. Once she had K9, they kind of made it a living room. <laughs> so they're doing things like a game of chess, mm. whatever, things like that. And then in the 80s, they turned it into... Never thought about that. Never thought of it like that. But that's Just what they did. the fireplace, really, isn't it? Yeah, mm. but that's what they did. And then in the 1980s, they went one stage further and turned it into a teenager's bedroom. Where you've got two teenagers sharing the same bedroom and no longer getting on. Yeah. They may have been, they may have been great sharing the bedroom you, when they were six and eight, but when they're 14 and 16, it's not quite so good. So what they're doing now is trying to avoid the pitfalls of it. But at the same time, it's no longer an empty space like it was in the 1980s mm-hmm. and the 1970s, the, the classic series. You can impose a living room psychological aesthetic on it because there's nothing there it's like you know it's like one of those stage plays when you're on a completely white stage and you have to tell the audience what that stage is through your dialogue and through your actions right you know exactly the kind of thing i mean rightly Mm. that's what you're doing in the classic series but the tardis now is no longer an empty space but having said that it's not a normal space so you can't impose normality on it you can't turn it into a living room but at the same time 
because it's not an empty space, you can't impose something on it that's not natural for it. So in some way, you have to find something for them to do which is natural to the environment and is not an imposition on the environment. Mm. And the TARDIS is the travel machine. So most of the writers, they've been doing this ever since the corals came in, mm. most of the writers say, right, what would they be doing in there? Yeah. They'd be talking about where they've just come from and where they're just going exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. And, the, and the things oh, the No, I understand why it's there. Absolutely. It was, the it things was more the delivery. It was a little bit forced. Yeah. The things yeah, that the Doctor would forced. do as well in the TARDIS is, is fixing it underneath and all that sort of business. So he's got a book. He's now got a bookcase, so he'd be reading a book. We had a chalkboard to. His, so you throw all these little bits of normality into this weirdness, and it kind of works nicely. But the, with your com- the conversation that Clara had, mm. I suddenly had this kind of throwback to Rose um, being in the TARDIS with Christopher Eccleston in Boomtown. That is kind <laughs> of the era we're going for, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's so they the... went out and they had all their adventures because obviously we couldn't. Have see all these adventures they just didn't have time so Russell D Davis invented all these stories almost like for fans to go out and just create their own stories again mm, or, yeah. uh, or whatever and then they came back and they're all talking about it and high-fiving each other and oh mm. do you remember that and oh do you remember those people made of ice and oh yeah he looks like a dog with a I don't know whatever but um so and she was really kind of enthusiastic Clara just like Rose was almost like oh I love doing this with you doctor that kind of Oh, let's have adventures. Mm. It, it's come back, strangely, echoes from, from Rose. Can you explain, seeing as his first watch, I didn't really get the import of that little scene where the Doctor and Clara went back into the TARDIS. And he was oh, just well, checking on that. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. That's this year's story arc. Okay. Last year, there was Danny Pink. And last year, as I've said so many times, what you got was the story of the Doctor finding himself again through a companion who has a relationship elsewhere that's reflecting back on him, reflections mm. again. Mm. This year, there's no relationship that the character, the companion's having. So this year, the arc is going back, and the Doctor's found himself. Mm. So he doesn't need to go anywhere anymore. So the Doctor, to all intents and purposes, is a character without a destination anymore. Mm. In personality terms, mm. in story terms, is destinations. Gallifrey. So again, the arc now is back on the companion. You have to tell a story with the companion. Mm. And the story that Stephen Moffat's been seeding is what happens when the companion becomes equal with the Doctor. And this is, I suppose it's classical Greek story. This is what happens when... Well, this is what happens when... uh, What's-his-face goes flying up into the sky and his wings melt off. Icarus. Mm. Icarus, that's the word I'm looking for. This is what our story arc here is. This is what happens when a human being, Clara, sets herself up amongst the gods. Mm. You're bound for a mighty fall. That, to me, is this story That was the same uh, as when we had Rose and the Doctor going on about the werewolf. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they fall. They mm. fall, they rise, and then they fall. But on that instance, it was the pair of them. On yeah. this instance, I think it's just Clara. Mm. So that line, I think, needed to be in there. I know it's an annoying line about the tall-necked people, but I think that it served a purpose to show uh, her... Absolutely, yeah. I where mean, she is Taking control. Yeah. yeah. Because he's been saying all along... But it's supposed to be the glory years of the Doctor and Clara, isn't it? It's this series is supposed to be, isn't it? Um, yes and no, because mm. 
it's he's found himself now, so he knows who he is, he knows where he is, he knows what he's doing. And imposed upon that is somebody who he thought was his second-in-command, for want of a better expression, who he's having these adventures with that he's in control. But we had that line in Deep Breath, which is the control freak. And, you know, he has been setting this up for the entire time she's been on the TARDIS, basically. She is taking control. Mm. And and that scene where they come out of the TARDIS, where they talk about the long-necked people, that's just a little kind of jokey way of showing that she's not saying anymore, wouldn't it be nice to do something? She's saying now, I want to do something. Mm. And the Doctor has to walk away and say no. Mm. Mm. So then you get the scene later on, which is more of the same thing, where I can't remember the exact way the dialogue went, but it was almost like she walked into the TARDIS and said, "That's." she said, this is what we have to do. And he says, Mm. yeah. He Mm. says, you're standing in the TARDIS, given the orders, that's my job. Mm. Yeah. Basically, that was the gist of that scene. I do like the old uh, role reversal on the um, kind of Leela Doctor thing going on. So instead of the Doctor showing Leela, uh, you know, uh, bringing her up to speed with civilization, it seems to be that Clara is turning around and trying to teach the Doctor oh, the humanity. Bit with the, cards. the bit with the cards. Was oh, God, that was that's brilliant. My yes, utterly. <laughs> yeah, it it's, it's almost didn't work because it's almost like you can't quite believe they should bother to write those cards down and you think yeah, yeah, minute, yeah. after the last few years of watching people yeah you can but also yeah but also it's a television program i you know one of the things that is often it? gets one of the things that often gets complained about with doctor who is that wouldn't really happen you know things like that little niggly things and i'm like and you know this is one of the complaints about moffat's witty dialogue people wouldn't really talk like that and my answer is always well, okay, so, they yeah. probably wouldn't, but I don't care. It's a no, television program. I watch television. I'd rather escapism, yeah, and it's exactly. an exaggeration of yeah, real yeah. life. I'd know, rather it was yeah, interesting and yeah. witty it, and inspiring it, than totally, realistic. Yeah, and it totally works because he's an alien. So you know, mm. when you see Tom Baker in Pyramids and Mars, that that thing that Sarah says, you know, sometimes you're what not human or whatever, alien. So you, you have to be reminded now and again that he isn't. He is an alien. It's not quite there still. We did something last week. He just wrote, read it out. As it was written down ad nauseum, so with the slashes, with the pet at the end. Just mm. brilliant. One of the, yeah, it was so, <laughs> so funny. One of the complaints about, um, Magician's Nephew, Magician's Nephew, Apprentice, that I heard, <laughs> it's not C.S. Lewis. No, that's my favourite Narnia story, then, I have to say. <laughs> one of the complaints oh, I heard, and it's only one person who made this specific complaint, but if one person made it, then you can bet your ass other people were thinking it, was that a lot of people complained that the scene with the guitar and the tank went on too long. Yes, a lot but of people then, that. by the same token, I've heard several people say, oh, but my kids absolutely adored that, the whole thing. Exactly, and I'm a kid and I loved it. Yeah, but the specific complaint I've heard is, there's the Doctor, and it's a long scene, and everything the Doctor does and says isn't funny. And that's the point. Yeah, that's the point. The doctor, we saw last year him not understanding human beings and what makes them work. And this year, we're seeing exactly the same thing. But whereas last year, because the doctor was in this weird place where he didn't know who he was, you know, as a person, needed to find himself again, needed to be the idiot with the box. 
So it seems narky last year. This year, we're getting the exact same thing, where he's not understanding how things work. But instead of it being narky, this time it's kind of more of a self-deprecating thing. Last year, it, it was like he was deprecating others. This year, it's like he's deprecating himself. And the scene with the cards is just another iteration of that. It's the Doctor mm. not being capable of doing something. And, you know, and it was hilarious. But in a way, it was really not funny. Because if a person actually needs, you know, <laughs> prompt cards in order to just interact with people at a normal level, mm. that's really not funny. You know what no, I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what makes it so funny. I, I don't know whether the scene with the with the tank and the guitar was overlong. I thought it was an enjoyable bit of comedy, bit of fun. When you look at the fish custard, I mean, that went on and on and on about the beans and everything. But everything about that scene I did think that hilarious. went one too far, actually, the what fish do? fingers and custard scene. <laughs> bad beans. Um, yeah, yeah. But I rewatched that bad bean scene today, and it is it's beautiful. It's so funny. It's really beautifully delivered by, by Matt Smith. Um, but you know, I it, that that was for me. That's Peter Capaldi's fish custard moment with the guitar. I just loved it every every minute of it. And I and still so think opposite. the tank is going to come back in episode twelve. It's got to. Oh, it's not in, impossible. <laughs> <coughs> There's um... <laughs> the guitar must come back. There must be a reason for it. But I bet it's in the TARDIS now. Did you do the oh, ironic thing? The funny thing. Mm. Uh, just on the subject of that is the fish fingers and custard is a really gentle scene between a manic doctor and somebody, mm. whereas the tank scene is a really over-the-top scene mm. between an actually quite reserved doctor and somebody. Mm. So the irony is in how unlike the character those scenes are, mm. in a way. All right, Simon, I think I butted in while you were about to make a point. Um, I think, yeah, from memory, I think I was just about to say, I uh, don't think the tank scene is anywhere near the strength of the fish fingers and custard scene. But no, I don't think it I is. I think that would have been completely different if he'd have had a keyboard on a tank there, Simon. And no! <laughs> if he was playing New Order, you'd be going, yeah, this is the best scene I've ever seen. No, no. Yeah. Equally, if he'd been on the, the top of the tank doing guitar solo <laughs> while playing a little flute. <laughs> The thing about the tank scene is this. The tank scene exists because we're having two-parters. You know, if that story had been done in 45 minutes, the tank scene probably wouldn't exist at all, or at most it would be a minute long. But because we're having two-parters, and and this is partly also a production thing, if you're going to set a scene in that room, then... You know, to justify the expense of going to that room and doing that scene, you have to do something that's substantial in screen time terms. So I think, although the scene itself probably on balance is too long and a little disappointing, although some of it's great, and the bit where he's doing the dude thing, I thought that was hilarious. But while on balance it might be a little overlong and a little disappointing, <laughs> Come on. you have to offset that with knowing that we got all those scenes with Davros in the second episode because of it. Mm. You know, we wouldn't have had anything like that if we hadn't had things like the tank scene in the first episode. Mm. So, How did he get the tank there? And people have been, you know... Uh, it's a time bandits. Fans have been... It was like Time Bandits, <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah. Fans have been saying for the last couple of years, and people have been predicting for the last couple of years as well, that at some point Stephen Moffat would do a series entirely made of two-parters. And whether this actually turns out to be quite that <clears throat> or not is beside the point. But, you know, it's a case of be careful what you wish for, because one of the things about having two-parters is you are going to have mm. scenes like that. And also, we're going to have what we've just watched, which is a really nicely well-paced and uh, quite, quite a nice slow reveal to a mystery. There's a build-up. Yeah. This is, you know, when you do a two-parter, and I've said this before about particularly the Russell T. Davis ones, if you're doing a two-parter, the first episode is essentially a 25-minute episode from Old Doctor Who stretched out to 45, and then the second is 325 squashed into 45. And there's no way around it. If you're going to do a two-part 45-minute story there has to be a pivotal point at the end of that first part. And yet there will occasionally come along stories where you can find a pivotal moment halfway through the story, but most aren't going to. Most are going to have a pivotal point somewhere in the sort of... It's like a three-act play, right? And you'll, you'll know this well enough. <clears throat> in a three-act play, you have a really pivotal moment at the end of the first act, and then the second act is, in many respects, treading water before you get to the third act. And what you're having here is the first act lasts 45 minutes, and then the second and the third act last the other 45 mm, yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly true of the, the last story. Yeah, yeah absolutely mm. it was. Should we score it then? Go on mm. then, you're looking at me. Shall I go first? Or? Oh, go on then, Lee. You, you give it a score. This is quite hard, actually, because I really thoroughly liked it, but I can tell that it's, you know, it's not a complex episode. It's just one of those things that you may go back to in five years' time and go, oh, that's all right, that's OK. It's it depends not, how the second half It depends out. entirely on how the second half goes, and then I expect that our score will be different next week because of the two together. So on this one alone, for enjoyment factor... Um, I think I'm going to score it quite highly. I'm going to give it a nine. I didn't find much to not enjoy about this. Mm. Okay, Simon. I think the fact that these two parters are quite cleverly constructed in a way that they they are each each part supposed to be in part one and part two. It's like chapter one, chapter two. Mm. So they are like acts. So they they are in their own right. So I'm not going to worry about how what part two does because okay. I can treat this as one single thing. Mm. And I think. It, while it was, it was no day of the doctor. It was no. Um... In some ways, just to butt in and to carry on your thought. In mm. some ways, this episode was resolved. Yeah. Because all those clues that they were looking for, they got the answers to all those clues. Mm. They found out what they were looking for, mm. and now it's a case. Of, they found the body in the box. Next week, it's a case of explaining why the body in the box and where's it come from. Mm. But this week's episode was about finding the body in the box. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. You know, I'm using that as a metaphor for all the other things they found out as well. But you know what I mean? It was mm. kind it's of... It's not the Doctor, is it? <clears throat> He's put himself on the box. Oh, the to past. protect himself from yeah. uh, undergoing the fate where he loses his eyes and turns yeah. into a ghost. Well, it could be. Could have been. We'll have to wait and see. Mm. Anyway, Simon, I jumped in your thought again. Are you, are you the king of avoiding spoilers has just spoiled it for everyone? Mate, I... Don't know what's going on. <laughs> no, it just comes out of my brain. Um, in in which case, um, and also, I, I just, as I say, it's not one of these real brainy episodes. But um, 
and it may be you know it may be fooling us in that it is it is a bit of a standout episode i think the way that the, the ghost's been dealt with and everything like that it's been a real bit of a mind bender because i feel i need to watch it again to get mm. certain scenes and certain things that were sent said the whole thing about the Peter Andre thing. I mean, that was a it was a brilliant <laughs> joke, making a very valid point, which is that Peter Peter Andre is the the, the devil. Yeah, um, I don't this, think you know. that's the point he was making, but no. nevertheless, he does close. listen to this. You know, he's going to be quite upset. Is he really? I hope you lose Strictly. Um, <laughs> and on the subject seeking... of you know visual metaphors and <laughs> symbolism and Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, Peter Andre listens to this while staring in the mirror. <laughs> that's. <laughs> these hollow eyes um, they're only hollow because of what's behind them <laughs> uh, I just wanted to really wanted to make the point that sometimes Doctor Who just needs these stories that they they kind of come across as a bit of a stopgap between the pivotal ones and I just thought it was great and I just thought it was consistent and solid and so I'm going to give it it would have been eight and a half because of the little niggles, but hell, they don't matter. I'm going to give it a nine as well. Okay, I'm going to give it a seven. Okay. Because while I agree it did everything that it was doing brilliantly and it was amusing and it kept us on the edge of our seats and everything else, it felt insubstantial. Mm. You know? But then uh, that's the same thing I did with the Dalek story. I felt that things dragged it down to make it feel insubstantial, which is why I gave no, that No, no, I thought the first half of the Dalek one was substantial, mm. had meat on its bones, whereas this... I mean, it depends how the second half goes. This could obviously change. But while that felt like... What I mean is, if the bones is the plot, that felt like there was an awful lot of stuff going on there mm. to give it substance. This felt like the plot really pared down. It was literally... I mean, yeah. like I, was, I said earlier... It was I don't think lit- it could have done any more, though. No, I don't think it could, but that's what I'm saying. Seven. Mm. I, it's still a good score, isn't it? Are you yeah. 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 And I what mean, I'm saying is, it did what it did brilliantly, but it's, at the moment, it's a Revenge of the Cybermen as opposed to a Genesis of the Daleks. Okay. So as good as it is, and as much as I enjoy it, mm. it's not one of those stories that, in so far, it's not one of those stories that in years to come, years to come, I'm yeah, going to think I can't back remember what say, I gave Waters of Mars because I mean it's not as good as Waters of Mars. But I think it's better than Waters of Mars. I do. I didn't like. Oh no, no, the first half of Waters of Mars was absolutely fantastic. The mm. second half really let it down. Oh, okay. The opposite thing could happen this time. We have to wait and see. Actually, Toby Whitehouse is one of those writers where when he pulls it out, and I think God <laughs> Complex is his best story. I don't, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> Well, I thought this was better, if I'm honest. Better than a God Complex. I think the writing in this was better. No, I think the writing... Do you know what would have been interesting? I'm talking about the layers of writing. There were no layers on this. It would have been interesting to see the God Complex as a two-parter. I think I would have loved it as a two-parter. I'm going to have really to watch God Plex, it, Complex again because... You can really make it even more creepy and build it up. And I think these two parts... I don't remember awesome. any of the dialogue in the God Complex being as good oh, as no, no, it was. Was it? Okay, yeah. I'll have to watch it again. The God Complex is a quiet classic. That's a story that really lives well in my memories. Mm, okay. Whatever. Mm. However you want to put it. This one, yeah, it was really, really funny, but it just... It felt... It felt one note almost, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Oh no, it wasn't I mean one it, note. it really drove what it was doing. Yeah. 
but it just drove what it, it was, was doing. It was one note because it was set in one place and it had one thing to do and it just went from... Yeah, it's, it's not being set in one place, it's, it's the linear. having one thing to do, yeah. The whole thing was linear, for me, you know, but I think the reason why, I don't know about you, Simon, but the reason why I've scored it so highly is because all of the elements of everything from the production to the acting yeah. to the script, the dialogue, and the fact that it's not a bad story, actually, underneath it. And it's supernatural science fiction thread with and it's Doctor Who. You know, that's why I'm scoring it so highly. Um... Uh, but it's not just about the story. Well, it's like a rose story. Actually, is I think a small part of it. In yeah. order for me to give it as like a nine, a ten, <laughs> maybe an eight, I think a story has to kick me up the ass and say, "Whoa!" Yeah, you know. Okay. And this didn't kick me up the ass and say, "Whoa!" There was nothing in there. I can do that. <clears throat> there was nothing. I mean, there were lines of dialogue and there were jokes that I couldn't have predicted were coming. But do you know what I mean? There weren't any story beats mm. where I suddenly went. Oh, didn't yeah. see that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And there weren't any um, intellectual beats no. where I said, no, I didn't see that coming. You know, it, mm. for a story to really, really kick home, it has to be one that makes you see things in a new way. Okay. And while this had the potential to get there, I mean, the whole thing about the ghosts is kind of in that area, you know, as an episode that hasn't yet got there. It didn't, so as good as it was, I'm not sure. A seven. It'd be interesting to see how we feel about it, Simon, in a year or two's time, actually. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I was going to say, it's like, you know, it's like judging a roast dinner and a burger. You know, you you can't, in theory, a roast dinner is better than a burger because it's a full meal and it's a slap up meal and all that sort of thing. But, you know, it's a great, it was, you get a great roast dinner, which is Day of the Doctor, and then you get a great burger, which was this. Okay, but. But not, not and he's a vegetarian, be... <laughs> so he's completely buggered. But not to be patronising, I think you two probably like your stories more straightforward than I do. No, well, we are no. slightly stupid, aren't we, compared to JR? <laughs> That's not really no, what I meant. I love but I mean the type stories. of story. I like a, a a story that makes my brain hurt. Okay, really, I was talking about Lee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I adore Day of the Doctor and stuff like that. So, whereas I couldn't. I couldn't see what everybody was banging on about Day of the Doctor. It took me three watches before I went, my God, this is absolute genius. Mm. Um, but I, maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind at the end of your wedding, slightly drunk. <laughs> slightly, <laughs> yeah. It's a bit worrying, isn't it, that I took to it quicker? <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move on. There, there's a piece of news this week. We don't usually do news, but I don't think we can avoid doing this news. There's just going to be a spin-off series. Mm. Um, the announcement. Got any issues with that? People got issues with that. Oh, I understand God. the issues. So, what was the issue? Explain. The People said they hyped it up too much. Was it hyped up too much? No. No. What happened was, what? Okay, let's do the announcement and then we'll do the news. What happens often with news of this kind? With a piece of casting news, you'll just put that out in the morning because a piece of casting news like um, Dennis Penis is going to be in Doctor Who. Is that, he? Yeah, in two weeks. Oh. Or something. I can't actually. Oh, he's great. Yeah, right. If you're going to put out a piece of news like that, that is not uh, headline news in the paper. When I say headline, I don't necessarily mean the front headline, but you know, that's not going to, that's not going to have half a page in the Daily Mirror or whatever. A story like a new spin-off series, that is big news. Mm. You know, whatever criteria you judge it by, not many television programs get spin-offs. And this is the first time in 
something like eight years that Doctor Who's had a new spin-off announced. So that is... Blimey. Has it been that long year since Sarah Jane? Well, Sarah Jane was 2000 and... Or maybe it was six years, yeah, whatever. Okay. But still, you know what I mean. It's a number of years. It, these things don't come by. No. So when you do a new story like that, you have to put it out in the window between the last main channel news bulletins of the day, which run from 10 till half past 10, and before the newspapers go to press for the following day, because the pattern these days is that when something like the Mirror, the Telegraph, whatever, goes to press, which would be between 10 and 11 at night, and usually they're on the streets by half past 11 or 12, if you live in London near enough to where they make it, what they do with the big stories is they put those stories on their website at the same time as the paper goes to press. Not the following morning, but that evening as the as the newspaper's completed and goes into the actual presses. Those big stories go on the website, you know, probably in less detail oftentimes, for the people who subscribe to the website. You have to subscribe to these websites. Mm. So between the window from half past ten to midnight, say, because that is the window of an hour and a half when these things happen, is when you put out a story that's too big to have been a late item in yesterday's news and will be a big item in the following day's news. Whether the newspapers actually carry it in the paper editions or whether it's just on their website, that's the time they publish the stories on their website. So the announcement gets made at 11 o'clock at night. A lot of the people who are interested enough in Doctor Who to be interested in this news aren't necessarily still going to be around on the internet at 11 o'clock at night to catch this news. For example, me, I get up at 4, 4.30 in the morning. I usually go to bed at half past 10. So I'd have missed this news by half an hour. So earlier in the evening at something like 7 o'clock, the BBC put out a tweet saying we have a news story that's coming up at 11. I don't think they specified the time, but uh, people knew it was going to be 11 after about half an hour. Everybody seemed to know. So so they put out a tweet earlier in the evening to say there's a news story coming up at 11. And immediately, everybody who sees that tweet thinks, right, this is a big story. What is my big story I would like to see. <laughs> and when it turns out not to be the big story that, you know, somebody wanted it to be Paul McGann's been announced to be in Doctor Who next year. Somebody wanted it to be there's been a Doctor Who movie announced. Somebody wanted it to be, I don't know, missing episodes have been found and announced. All these things, there were many, many different things that people thought that would be my perfect story. It was never going to be the story that everybody wanted, because everybody wanted a different story. So the news in itself was easily big enough to justify, A, being broken in the window between the bulletins and the papers going to press, and B, was easily big enough to justify that tweet earlier in the evening, letting people know who wouldn't have been around for 11 o'clock to stick around if they wanted to be there for the announcement. What then happened is a lot of people started making guesses in reply to the original tweet at 7 o'clock, saying, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And I think there were only three tweets in response to that. <clears throat> and, you know, people were saying, is it the announcement of the new companion? And the person who was on the BBC's Twitter account said, no, it's bigger news than that. And that, a whole new series 
it's bigger news than that. So tweet two was, it's bigger news than that. Somebody else guessed, oh, is it Peter Capaldi announcing his retirement? And the tweet came back from that, no, it's good news. So now people have got, oh, it's good news and it's really big news. <laughs> so automatically, these wishes that they're already having for it are starting to get blown out of proportion. So when the news actually comes at 11 o'clock that it's a new spin-off series, and we'll talk about what we think about that in a minute, everybody's disappointed because it's not the story they thought it was going to be. And there was this big backlash on Twitter and then on Facebook, and it was carried on right until the next day. And it wasn't everybody. I mean, it depends It depends who you've got on your timeline. Yeah. But there was a fair amount of backlash on Twitter and on Facebook about the fact that people were disappointed because they didn't have the news that they'd wanted. It's a it's a new, it's an exercise. It's a new learning curve, isn't it, for PR departments uh, in the way that they now market. Yeah. So that Twitter was. I mean, I wouldn't have answered. For Somebody start. said. Actually, I don't think I would have said there is something coming up at eleven. I would just announce it. You just announce it, and it gets picked up the next day. So there, somebody in the department is saying, right, let's let's say there's an announcement at eleven. It's Twitter. It's like instant. Wow, it's going to be great. But they forget how instant it is. So therefore, you're going to have millions of people responding to you. Mm. And then, for some reason, though I, I wouldn't have done this, they responded to at least a couple of those answers. No, it isn't this. It's bigger than that. It's mm. good news. Which makes it even worse. Do they not know Doctor Who fans by now? These <laughs> obviously because well, this is the thing. Tweet. Whoever that was does not know what a fan is. If you look at it, so they should have just left. You it know, the number it. of responses they actually had to that tweet probably numbered in the. Maybe hundreds. Right, okay. But BBC Doctor Who is tweeting out to 1.4 million people. Yeah. So you are actually, the backlash is actually the tiniest, tiniest fraction. But if the backlash is most of the actual vocal reaction, it looks a lot worse than it really is. Yeah. So, and I did have an issue with this, and my issue was nothing to do with whether people were disappointed at the actual news. But the way you voice that disappointment, mm. you don't, what, because, you know, to me, the crux of it is that news might not have been the news that you wanted, but that doesn't make it bad news. No, no, no. no. It's like a kid who gets told they've got something really great for Christmas or something like that, mm. or, or for their birthday, and they unwrap it. Yeah. And they've been bought a car, but what they really wanted was a motorbike or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're and thinking. thinking. And not thinking and going... Yeah, well, where's my motorbike? Mm. Yeah, because I thought you when you said it was something I really want, I'd really want, and you know, what, where's this motorbike? Instead, you've got a BMW. You've got your car. You can take all your friends out and think about it, pick up girls in it, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Once the news sets in, I think most people to are going to therefore say, "Oh, actually, when you think about it, a new spin-off series is potentially great news." Well, we've you know we're all Facebook people and I'm not going to bring up too much on what I've, I've been talking to people about what I've seen but there's a real mixture of, of people feeling like oh you know the series is going to stop so they're going to put this in between the gap and well just on that point yeah go on there's loads of other points but we'll just but this is actually quite an important point a lot of people are saying oh they've only told us this to mitigate against the fact that there's not going to be a full series next year <laughs> and while I would say it looks pretty much bang on that there's not going to be a full series next year. That would have been the case whether this series had come along or not. 
So, therefore, you have to divorce this series from that news. Because, as I understand, they're going to start filming in the spring on this, and it'll be ready for later in the year. So, obviously, there won't be a Doctor Who series early next year, and this won't be on at the same time as Doctor Who. So, therefore... No, this is going to be on later next year. What, class? Mm. Yeah. This starts filming. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It starts filming in the spring, and then... Yeah, but so does Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Doctor Who they're not going normally... to them at the same time, though, surely. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. Oh, okay. Or maybe it'll be kind of tags. One will follow straight after the other. Because mm, mm. I think the thing about it is, <coughs> technically this is BBC Three, but unless I misread it, BBC Three is not going to exist as a television station by that time. So what will happen is this will debut on the website and then will be broadcast on BBC One. Okay. So this will actually go out on BBC One. In television terms, I believe I may have got that completely wrong. Yeah, but I I I think it's great news. I love the idea that it's more spin-offs. The last three were absolutely fine. I can. Oh, it's a massive thumbs up for Doctor Who. Massive thumbs up. It's just just you know it's again it's saying how brilliant Doctor Who is and how well received it is and how well regarded it is still with the BBC in order to have a, a spin-off. Um, well, there's two responses to that, and one is. Because it's been suggested that this series, I've got to be careful how I phrase this, that this series isn't really Doctor Who, and that this series might have happened whether it had the Doctor Who connection or not. Because there's no, because from what we know about it at the moment, there doesn't appear to be any characters in it, but it's set in Coal Hill School. It could be that this idea came to the BBC, I'd like to do this series set in a school, that's like this, and they said, okay, that sounds pretty much like Doctor Who, why don't you set it in the school in Doctor Who? It could be that this idea came to them independently, because mm. the guy who's writing it, I forget his name, uh, Patrick Ness, he, he's just got a hell of a reputation he brings with him. So if this had been entirely independent of Doctor Who, it probably would have worked anyway. And although this might seem to contradict what I was saying just now, that I don't think we've been given this to ameliorate against there not being so much Doctor Who next year. I think somebody, if that happened, looked at the idea and said, well, that's close enough to Doctor Who. Why don't we do it that way? To which he would have said yes. But it could be that they went to him and said, look, we'd like to do something in Skull Hill School. Do you have an idea for us? Because presumably, you know, given the reputation he's got, he's already in dialogue with TV people about potentially doing something. It's just that nobody knows quite what yet. Mm. Somebody says to him, what about this? We don't know. We'll have interviews, I suppose, close to the time yeah, yeah. where we'll find these things out. But I can't remember where I was going at that point. But the news itself that there is going to be this series that is a spin-off, if all the connection is is the school rather than any characters or aliens or other plot points, it's going to be so removed from Doctor Who perhaps in all but thematic terms, it's not going to be like the Sarah Jane Adventures of Torchwood. Those were spin-offs that were based around a popular character. Mm. This is a spin-off that's based around a concept. And obviously that concept mm. is close enough to Doctor Who that this fits in that universe. Yeah. So... Yeah, so it could... It, yeah. Well, I think that is... If people are disappointed with the idea of the series, I think that's the disappointment. That it's not a spin-off for characters, but a spin-off for an idea. But we don't know, do we? I mean, we no, know, we know. We don't know. Very Interested, might just wander in as a as a 
part of the school or whatever. Well, it would be lovely if he'd had a cameo nice, in one but of but the you know episodes. What? It's, it's, it's by a production team, or it's, it's kind of handed over to Patrick Ness, who knows what he's doing, by the BBC, who've got the Doctor Who connection, It's obviously, because it's Coal Hill School. It sounds really exciting. And now, we had Sarah Jane for the kids, and we had Torchwood for the adults. Now, this is designed for teens, is that right? Mm, yeah. Well, well, firstly, teenagers don't like being called teens, so that, that's... You, They'll have to stop saying that. <laughs> but young adults um, and young adult novels are massive. The big sellers are massive at the moment. Patrick well, this... is a young adult uh, writer. This is going to be really interesting because teenagers, if I remember right, when I was young, I was watching Zombie Dawn of Dead at 14. So I wouldn't be necessarily watching something like Class if it's dumbed down Doctor Who. So it would have to be at the same level of Doctor Who or even more grown up than we realise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know... Be, I think it will be. Yeah, it'd be a very interesting um, spin-off. I, I, I had this conversation with Cass on the podcast I did with him, and somebody brought this up after this news came out about class, and you won't have heard it, Lee, so for your benefit and anybody who's forgotten, I posited that... Oh, and this goes back to the ages thing that I was talking about before we started recording... I said, when you're two, you can sit somebody down in Doctor Who and they look at the weird things on the screen and it transfixes them even though they've no clue what they're watching. When somebody's four, they're old enough to sort of understand a little bit about what they're watching and it's it's weird and amusing. When they're six, they're old enough to appreciate that the scary bits are scary. When they're eight, they're old enough to appreciate that the fun bits are fun. When they're ten... They're enjoying the scary bits and the fun bits in a way where they're engaging with the stories more. And when they're 12, they grow out of it until they're 18, 20, 22, when they can come back to it with a sort of sense of ironic detachment. But between the ages of 12 and 18, or whatever, you know, that's a generalisation. Between those kinds of ages, people tend, I think, and I'm obviously generalising incredibly, I think people tend to leave Doctor Who and either come back to it or don't. But the audience is always transient. Every year when you get a new set of four-year-olds and six-year-olds and eight-year-olds or whatever, you lose another set of 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds. And they either come back or they don't. But the audience is cyclical, which is why the programme should never attempt to grow up with its audience. It should always stay at the same age because, you know, because of that cycle. Mm. Class looks to me like a way of engaging with the people between the ages of 12 and 20, so that even if they leave Doctor Who, instead they engage with class, which is what brings them back to Doctor Mm. Who when they get out of that phase where they've grown out of it. So the ones that would get to 12 and leave Doctor Who and not come back now have a reason to stick with it and eventually do come back. So potentially what you're doing is expanding your adult audience off the back end of class. In between us with aliens. Basically, yeah, probably. I mean, who knows what the time slot will be. It could potentially be in the nine o'clock post-watershed time slot and probably wouldn't have swearing and probably wouldn't have sex, but would have enough references to that kind of thing that you wouldn't put it on before. But then BBC runs from... (coughs) Oh, BBC... Three, as we know it now, runs from seven o'clock as to whether this is on the website or not. You know, people will have access to it. So you'd assume the content would be adult enough that it would be 
in the post-watershed slot, but they'd be careful enough with it that you could watch it in a pre-watershed slot without having to actually edit it. I don't know about you, but when I was that age, the last thing I wanted to watch was, was kids my age in a school. Because oh, I, yeah. I didn't want to be in the school anyway. So no. Grain Chill to me, when it first started... It was great, it was great but you grow past it. At, oh, yeah. You know, it got to the point where well, I was in the secondary schools... And I thought, I don't want to... Why well, don't I come thing, and watch yeah. the same thing? I've just been in there all When day. you write children's fiction, you write the kids in your stories two, three years older than the kids you want to read it. If you want to appeal to eight to 12-year-olds, you write about 14-year-olds. You know, if you want to appeal to six-year-olds, you write about eight-year-olds. That's how you do it, because the character has to be aspirational, not just in the sense that they're the hero of a story and you want to aspire after being them, but aspirational in the end of the story, in that it's somewhere that you're growing towards. With this, the way to ameliorate against the audience being as old as, if not older than the characters, is to do what they did with In Between Us, where rather than be aspirational characters, what you're doing is you're asking people to look back at where they were and laugh at it. Yeah. Mm. So it's... You know, you flip it. And laugh at it, we do. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I am not by any stretch of the imagination saying this is going to be a comedy, but what I'm saying is, if this is intelligent enough, it will draw the characters in such a way that people who are older than or the same age as those characters can look at them and say, aren't I glad that's not me? At the same time, perhaps, there's also saying, don't I wish that's what I had been? Hmm. Or don't I wish that's what I had done, perhaps? Well, I'm looking forward to it anyway. My hunch is with a name like Class, it's quite... Um, some people have been saying it's a dull name. I think it's a really interesting name. I don't know. I do. I do. I think it... It, it doesn't we sell don't, it. Well, we don't know why it's called Class yet, do we? No. no this is the thing. There, has to, be, there has to be more than one level of meaning. It, yeah. Yeah. It's it's I get the impression it's, it's a light-hearted thing. And maybe, as you say, maybe the characters do we know, aren't just aren't Do we classy. know then? Do we know enough to make We don't make know that? anything. It's no, saying no, Coal no, Hill School is written by Patrick Ness. And they it's will have. They said something about um, aliens are... I, I don't think they phrased it like this. Aliens are bleeding into our reality sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. So uh, don't, from that, it's 8.45 minutes. They've said that much. It could be that those 8.45 minutes... It's going to be like a miniseries then, Pep. Possibly Tell one story, one like story Torchwood. With a few arcs, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. possibly. Be yeah, better. Than Isn't the whole lot written by Patrick Ness? Is that the? Well, they've not, uh, they've not specifically said that. So it could be that he writes the first and last, and a couple in between, and he has other yeah. writers working for him. Mm. But I mean, if they've known about this for a while, and they won't be announcing things until they're pretty much set up and ready to go, and it's still got four, five, six months before it starts filming. That's enough time for him to write all the episodes. So, yeah, potentially it will be ruled yeah. by him. Well, I hope the kids are like, attack the block, you know. Real. What you, what you get, you know, nowadays. No, I wouldn't mind seeing is the two kids from Sarah Jane Adventures. Turning up. Yeah, a bit older now, aren't they? That, that would work. Well, we don't know. We could be setting a sixth form, you see. Yeah. Hmm. We'll just have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Right, then I guess until next week, uh, we'll probably look back at this episode and say, oh my God, wasn't it so much better, stroke worse than I thought it was? <laughs> <laughs> until we'll then, again tomorrow. I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.